Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am an impaired Mike Pesca. You could hear this. This is my instrument, my voice. It's also something of my temple. And I desecrated the temple last night. I did a live show in Washington, D.C. I got to say, next time, we should use microphones rather than those giant cones they used in vaudeville. As I sang, the red, red robin keeps bop, bop, bopping along. And there I was at the Hamilton Theater, just a few blocks from the White House, where we had a guy who was a tweeting. Now, there is a through line between Trump's tweets and his, and his offhanded slur in front of the Navajo code talkers. And, well, the through line is, of course, that we have a tangerine madman in the Oval Office. But where this through line ends is a lie that he's been perpetuating. So let's remember and let's recall what has happened. In front of the Navajos, because he has no filter and really knows only six things about the world, he says, oh, these guys are Native Americans. Internal monologue, not using the phrase Native Americans. These guys are Native Americans. What's like a thing I know about Native Americans? Plus, add to that, what's what's something I'm miffed about today? Peak plus Native Americans equals Elizabeth Warren. So he makes the Pocahontas joke. We have a representative in... Congress, who they say was here a long time ago, they call her Pocahontas. Now, there's a reason that Trump does not care if anyone finds this offensive. He can argue, well, it's only offensive against Native Americans. And since Elizabeth Warren claims she's not a Native American, she shouldn't be offended. It's a great get out of jail free card. You just insult someone with an ethnicity they're not. All right, there, whatever you say, Omar Sharif. Um, I'm actually Portuguese. Doesn't matter. Trump goes on, but none of this matters for Trump, just like it doesn't matter that today he tweeted a link with information supplied by a right-wing UK hate group, and yesterday he retweeted a link from Magapill, which, you know, is the kind of website that also says the Vatican's controlling your brains, (laughs) the Vatican wishes. But the through line is this, that Donald Trump just gets every bit of reinforcement that nothing he says has the consequences with the people he cares about. And the people he cares about are the Trump voter. Now, the Trump voter aren't even the number of people who voted for Trump, the uh, low 40s percent, less than the number of people that voted for Hillary Clinton. And I don't say that to be didactic. I say it to outline the paucity of his political calculus. So he only cares about appealing to the people who are already with him because he thinks that by appealing to those people, he won the last election. He's done nothing to expand his appeal. And therefore, he thinks he will never be called to the carpet for offensive statements. And he also thinks that just embracing lies, if they help him, or something that will be accepted. I mean, that's all fine if all you want is to keep appealing to those 38% of Americans or 33% of Americans. It seems to me an insane electoral strategy, but I'm sure Donald Trump is saying, well, that's what they said about my last electoral strategy. And my last election showed I don't actually have to appeal to most people. But if you think you're going to win the presidency or get reelected, win it twice while losing the popular vote, that's never happened. And even though you won it once while losing the popular vote, 
I would say if I just told you or if I told anyone who knows anything, political scientists, even, you know, very Republican political experts, I'm going to give you one fact. Your candidate is going to lose the popular vote. Do you win the election? They could all imagine scenarios or point to actual scenarios where you won the actual election, but they would all say no. If you lose the popular vote, there are overwhelming odds that you are going to lose the election. Donald Trump doesn't know. Donald Trump doesn't care. Donald Trump has not had any stimulus that tells him that those statements are true. And the through line is when you add all this up, when you add that there's no accountability for the slurs, when you add that he could retweet any hate sites or insane sites, this is why he's now denying that the Access Hollywood tape took place. Back during the election, he copped to it. He apologized for it in his own way. He explained it as locker room talk. Now he's saying it was doctored. But the reason he's saying that is he is totally written off appealing to anyone who isn't already in the bag for Trump. I have no idea how this is going to play out if he ever gets a chance to be reelected again. I do think that he will have certain political victories along the way. I think Roy Moore is going to win in the Senate. I think the tax plan is going to pass and he could point to that as a huge victory. And maybe those things will tell him, well, why do I ever have to concede a point? Why do I ever have to say that, yeah, I apologize for being racist or retweeting a hate site? He's just saying to himself, everything I'm seeing shows me that my strategy is working. Well, Here's hoping that he's wrong. On the show today, Gordon S. Wood wrote about two presidents who I regard as slightly better than our current one, Jefferson and Adams. Stay tuned. They were two of the greatest Americans, of course, two of the first three presidents. One was vice president to the other, and both are remembered rightly as essential founding fathers. But they were also, personally speaking, friends divided. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson are who we're talking about, and Gordon S. Wood is who we're talking to. He's the Brown professor and winner of the Pulitzer Prize who has written about these great Americans to add to his pantheon of revolutionary figures that he's written about. Hello, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What compelled you to write about these men, not necessarily the men themselves, but the relationships between the men? Was that the compelling thing? You're writing about a relationship as much as you are a biography? Originally, I had just finished uh, editing three volumes of Adams's writings for the Library of America. And um, I thought I would write about Adams, but my uh, editor... Um, at the Penguin simply suggested, why don't you compare Adams with Jefferson? And suddenly that struck me as uh, a great idea, and I'm glad he suggested it because I think I learned more about both of them because I pitted them one against the other. Wait, was the idea that Jefferson sells books better? No, <laughs> I think it was that they, they differ so much, and yeah. you have one who's an idealist, a, a radical liberal, 18th century style, and the other a conservative. They, they couldn't have differed more on more issues, and, and suddenly they're friends, but divided friends because they differed on every conceivable important question you could imagine. Except for liberty from England. Right. No, they supported the revolution and yeah. uh, they, the one thing they had in common, they both hated Hamilton. 
uh, Alexander Hamilton. Yes. Deeply. <laughs> One winds up uh, getting it a lot worse in the musical than the other. John Adams really is spared, by the way. <laughs> right. No, he <laughs> yeah. uh, he's not mentioned much. Well, it's funny. We go through, you know, historically, there are these great polarities among revolutionary figures, and you've written about so many. I do think that Jefferson gets compared to Hamilton a lot, and then Adams gets compared to Jefferson a lot, and then Jefferson's relationship with Washington gets talked about a lot. I guess my point is Jefferson becomes sort of a a touchstone in which a lot of the other founding fathers are judged and seen. Right. Well, Jefferson is is, uh, the model for America. He stands for America. The Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. We have this huge memorial in the District of Columbia dedicated to Jefferson. There's nothing for Adams. No. Jefferson's Monticello is visited. It's a World Heritage Site. It's visited by hundreds of thousands of people every year. Jefferson is really a celebrity. He was a celebrity then, and he's he's now still, even despite his slaveholding. Yeah, he and he wrote for the ages, and he saw himself. Well, he was loath to admit he was an aristocrat, but of course he saw himself as that. And there was a glow to him, an almost godlike glow to him. And there is Adams absolutely in his shadow, just in terms of magnetism and in terms of personality and in terms of even his style of writing. He was just grouchy on the page as opposed to, you know, writing with flourishes that generations would be able to enjoy. Well, well, they were in different celebrity leagues. I mean, at one point in their correspondence, Adam says to Jefferson, well, how many letters do you get every year? And, and Jefferson says, well, I get 2,000 and something. And Adams is shocked because he only gets about 200 and something. So he, he's 10 times the, the number of uh, correspondents. And, and he's corresponding with the, the great naturalist Alexander Humboldt in Germany. He's corresponding with the Tsar. I mean, uh, Adams has none of this kind of uh, uh, celebrity status at all. So he knows he's in a different league. He knows that Jefferson is his superior in that respect. And their great bonding comes when they're representing America overseas there right. in France. And and later, uh, later they were in England and France. And during those times, you know, the book is called Friends Divided. Mostly the periods of them being united, the person of Abigail Adams was really in the middle of that. Very much so. You know, Jefferson's abroad as a widower. He had no no family. I mean, he had his daughters, but uh, the, he, he bonded with the, with the Adams family and was visited. He visited them. He, he would go to the symphony or, or the uh, museum with, with John Quincy, uh, Adams' son, very bright uh, young man. And he was part of their family. And, and I think he really experienced a family life in a way that he hadn't earlier. And uh, the, when Adams is go to London as minister to London, he sends things to Abigail. He's actually doing shopping for her. And he, he flirts a little bit in, in his uh-huh. correspondence with her. They had a really close relationship uh, that came out of that bonding, first in France and then the correspondence uh, with them between France and, and England. Could a man come to power in Massachusetts if he had Jefferson's belief? Same question. Could a John Adams type, and let's take as part of that his strong opposition to slavery, could a man such as that, a a middle-born man, come to power in Virginia of the mid-18th century? Well, no, middling people. You had to be a wealthy planter, um, slaveholder, to get into the House of Burgesses, the Colonial Assembly. And, And that's what catapulted Jefferson. He... 
His mother was a Randolph. He was uh, already uh, slated for top spot. And then when he inherited his father's uh, slaves and land and then his father-in-law's slaves and land, he already was one of the wealthiest members of the Virginia aristocracy. And and that's what uh, enabled him to immediately move into the uh, the House of Burgesses, the colonial legislature. Uh, Adams was a middling born from Braintree, he just had different circumstances. He never acquired much wealth. He was certainly well off, but it came from his legal career. He was a practicing attorney and one of the best, if not the best. By 1770, he was probably the best attorney and the busiest attorney in, in the colony of Massachusetts. And yet it is, I think, ironic that it's the aristocrat who today we'd call the populist and John Adams who was much more of the elitist. Well, that's exactly right. The planters in Virginia are the leaders of the Republican Party, which is uh, this where the irony or the paradox, parent paradox lists. They, these are aristocrats, all of them, the most aristocratic people in all of North America. And yet uh, they're the leaders of the popular party, the Republican Party. And it's the Federalists in New England who are uh, frightened of democracy with good reason because they uh, they knew what it could mean. Uh, the people weren't quite so willing to defer to the to their betters in Massachusetts as they were in in uh, in Virginia. Does John Adams losing uh, re-election to Thomas Jefferson uh, does that pretty much put the nail in the coffin for That's years it. and That's years? That's the yeah. humiliation. He just can't believe that he. You know, Washington's elected for two terms. Presumably, Washington could have served for life. He would Mm -hmm. have been elected. And and that's what most people thought the president would do, that he would be elected and reelected until he... Until he died, yeah. we were inventing like, this, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, but but uh, Washington serves two terms, but he wants to get back to Mount Vernon, so he refuses to go to a third term. And and Adams thought that he would at least be reelected for a second term, as Washington had. So it's a humiliation for him to lose to to Jefferson, and he refuses to attend the inauguration of his successor, which is the only president, uh, the only person to who to do that in our history. He, he leaves on the 4 a.m. stage. He wants to get out of town as fast as he can. It, it was sad because he, he, he did end the conflict with France, but the news of the convention that was signed with France ending the, the Quasi-War uh, came after the election. So he never got the benefit of, yeah. of his, one of his most courageous acts in his career. So there's a bitterness and an anger there that, that accounts for the, the break. Well, we know what Jefferson did during the Adams presidency. He was vice president. But what did Adams, what was Adams' role in public life during the eight years Jefferson was president? Well, he was retired and he he got involved uh, trying to defend uh, his career. He wrote for the newspapers and he watched from afar uh, what was happening. And of course, he had a son, John Quincy, who was deeply involved in politics. And so... uh, John Quincy becomes a Republican. So there's an easing of the relationship, which uh, easing of the passions that that Adams, the senior, had, and I think sets the stage for the reconciliation, which doesn't come until 1812 and almost entirely through the efforts of uh, of Benjamin Rush, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who, who knew both men but knew Adams best. He brings them together. He did a, he pulled a little move 
that I see in sitcoms sometimes, where he like he didn't trick Adams, but he told him about a dream and so well, forth. Well, yeah, yeah. He tells it. Well, he what he do is talk to each of them, say, "Look, the other one said that he loves you." Yes, and then <laughs> then he the, go to the other the one and say, "He loves you," and yeah. and uh, they he sets them up. But mm-hmm. he had to work on it two years. I mean, it wasn't something that happened overnight. Uh, but once it breaks, uh, then the letters flow. As, speaking of the correspondence, as a historian, you have to live in the world of your subjects. You have to just like live with their words and maybe come up for air every few minutes. Did you enjoy living in Jefferson's world more than Adams? No, I enjoyed living in Adams. Oh, you wow. read his diary, and you there's nothing like it in in uh, in American uh, literature. I know of no diary like it. Certainly, no founder wrote. He started writing in college, right after college, and he sounds like an adolescent because he tells you about every little moment of anxiety or it's like a kid coming back from a party saying well what did I say did I say the wrong things did I offend that woman did I he's just he he says everything that he's feeling and whoever does that I mean there are very few diaries which are, which are quite as explicit as his yeah and he's, then he, he's a president for our anxious age Right, exactly. The first neurotic president. (laughs) Yeah, he suffers that anxiety until he gets married, and then the thing becomes mature, and he becomes a somewhat different person. So it heartens me as a fan of history and a patriot to see that they made up. Uh, They both die on the same date, exactly 50 years after signing the Declaration of Independence. But that's a personal story, and as I was reading the book, I wondered— in terms of having an impact on America, does their thawing of relationships, does it, does it, did it actually mean anything in terms of how the course of America was set, the fact that these two great men who America owes so much to f- finally found out how to g- get along? Well, I think it has some meaning uh, in that it shows that two partisan people who are really partisan, and, and we think we have partisanship now, but it was nothing compared to what existed in 1800, for example. See, neither of these parties accepted the legitimacy of the other. So it was a much more serious split in, in 1800 than we have today, even though we think this is the worst that that, that could be. Um, and so I think it's important that these two men who represented these two parties and ran against each other uh, eventually became reconciled. It, it somehow gives us some sense that, that uh, we're, we're able to bring uh, opposites together. Uh, but it is uh, it is a different world back then. And, and 1798, 1799 was a critical moment in our history. We were threatened with invasion from France and they had a fifth column here that was going to help set up a puppet government just as Napoleon was doing all over Europe. So it, it, we have to appreciate how serious that crisis was. It helps explain the Alien and Sedition Acts, for example, enacted by the Federalists, which have, which have hurt them in, in their historical reputation ever since. In the beginning of the book, you talk about, and this is true, compared to Adams, Jefferson's place in history is much more celebrated. But these days, I do think, I mean, within the last couple years, his reputation has taken a hit because of reexamination of Sally Hemings. And it wasn't just a slaveholder. He was, especially compared to Washington, much less eager to emancipate his slaves, all these reasons. So as a historian, do you think there's going to be a reevaluation and a, a degradation of Jefferson's reputation? Or do you think this is like a pendulum? No, I think it's, he suffered terribly as a, as a private person. But what he said in the Declaration of Independence uh, sort of transcends his failings, so to speak, his personality. All men are created equal. 
when Lincoln said, all honor to Jefferson, that did it. I mean, we, that Declaration of Independence is the basis for our, uh, our democracy. And so I think because he was the author of it, we'll live on and, and in a way that Adams won't. Someone said, if you don't believe in Thomas Jefferson, you don't believe in America. That's right. That's his first uh, biographer, Parton, wrote that in 1870s. And, and uh, I think that's still true. Jefferson has – you have to see him as his words transcend his personality and his weaknesses and his, his slaveholding because he did make that statement which uh, uh, he didn't even mean all, all men. He meant only, in his case, all white men, although mm-hmm. I think many of his colleagues, most, most citizens, believe that all men are created equal. He meant that literally and that the differences that emerge are due to the environment, to the education of, the, of people. And that's why we as a people have been so obsessed by education because by and large we accept Jefferson's view. What's what's important is how we're treated and and how we're raised and how what kind of experience we have and, and that I think makes Jefferson the basis for our uh, our democracy. Adams is much too, you might say, realistic or or ornery and and uh, cynical. He can't uh, he can't speak to us in that sense. Gordon Stewart Wood is the Alva Away University professor at Brown. He won the Pulitzer for the Radicalism of the American Revolution. His latest book is Friends Divided, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, Professor Wood. Thank you. Harry! Here's an interview that we had last night with Perry Bacon of 538 about, well... All right, let's get right to it. Right now, the prediction markets have Roy Moore still being a 65% chance in Alabama. Prediction markets are sometimes wrong. I lost a lot of money on the election, but what do you think of that? Uh, that seems right to me. There's a, yeah. a poll out today, I think it's called from Change Research, but they were in the field last week and showed uh, Jones up three, they're back to Moore up four or five. So Change Research found some change. Sort of change Research found some change. And I, yeah. one of my colleagues, uh, Harry Enton, has been looking to see if uh, Moore is going to be more like, you remember Todd Aiken ran in 2012 and he sort of plunged in and we never kept going down, or he's going to be more like Donald Trump. And it looks like Moore is probably going to be, if he may not win, but he's going to be much, he's not like lost all support. And I think he's probably stabilized in the 48, 40, 47 zone right now. So I was listening, I think it was Nate who was, Nate Silver, who's uh, your boss at 538 on a recent podcast, was saying that the normal course of things is that one candidate, especially a Republican in Alabama, will establish supremacy. Then an incident will happen and perhaps he'll go down, but he'll bounce back. And so we'll be seeing the bounce back. But there are counterexamples, like Aiken just cratered. So what will be the difference? That Roy Moore is kind of knit into the fiber of Alabamans, whereas, whereas Aiken was just some guy who was running in Missouri and they didn't really have that gut relationship with? That and my... I haven't... I mean, I look at the numbers, but my suspicion is Alabama is a much more Republican state. That's the core Missouri, fact yeah, here. Yeah. This is not a you know breaking news here. But um, I think the last person to win a Senate race in Alabama, um, a Democrat, was I think we just said 1992. So this is like you know Missouri had a Claire McCaskill won in 2001, you know 2008 I think. So she had been she had won recently. Right. Jason Kander had won recently statewide there. This is a, you know Alabama is a you know the Democrats have a very hard time winning there now. There's a Democrat who won a statewide 
had raced for like farming commission something like that something like that in like <laughs> uh, 2007. We looked we went through all these races yeah. and so on. But he yeah. ran against a guy who molested 42 teenagers. <laughs> So just Roy so you know, Moore himself, yeah. we should note, um, ran in 2012 and for state Supreme Court before he got bounced off again. And he only won by four points. He's actually not that popular in Alabama. A regular candidate in Alabama would be winning by 20 points right now. Right. I was looking at turnout. And so when Shelby won, it was 2016, a presidential election. And I think he got 1.6 million votes. But there were something like 400,000 votes in the runoff between Strange and Moore. It's a huge gap. Turnout was like 20% in that election. God, it's such a cliche to say that the turnout will decide the election. How can it not? But, you know, what are the expectations for turnout? And is there an indication that high or will favor Jones or high will favor more? Higher than expected So the turnout. Secretary of State was saying... Um, there's about so there was about two two point two million people voted for president. Um, they expect about twenty percent turnout, which would be something like six hundred thousand in this race. I think they got the math right there. So the winning person will need three hundred fifty thousand, something like that. So it's a pretty low number to win. Six hundred thousand is a pretty low turnout. Um, in terms of like, I actually don't think turnout matters. And to some extent, there are Jones needs um, African American to vote for him and the few Democrats that vote for him, but this is a state that's like 70% white and very conservative and very evangelical. Ultimately, you're going to have to have a large number of people who normally vote for Republicans to switch over this time, and that's kind of, it doesn't matter who, the electors got to be at a swing in this case, and that almost never happens, but we'll see how it happens this time. Yeah, I have heard people saying, you know, if every African American in Alabama and the bulk of the Democratic Party is African-American, but the Democratic Party is really small in Alabama. And like you said, it's about 25% of the population is black. So if every African-American voted for Jones, he'd win. Seems to put a large burden on every African-American. Let me give a little mini speech here. I hate when we talk about black turnout. If I listen to your podcast 90% of the time and it still got canceled, would you blame me for that? I mean, the Cleveland Cavaliers never lose because LeBron doesn't score enough points. It may help if, you know, if uh, if, if uh, Isaiah Thomas comes back earlier or yeah. what have you, but it's rare to see black turnout always helps, I'm sure, but we still live in a majority white country, particularly in Alabama. I will say, though, if the Cleveland Cavaliers have no black turnout, Kevin Love has no one to inbound the ball to. <laughs> so they... They on the, on the other hand, if there's no black turnout, no one's making fun of Kevin Love on Twitter or, making, or you know, Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gets, yeah. LeBron's really <laughs> tough on Kevin Love. <laughs> tough Love. It's tough Love. Yeah, yeah that's said. what he's known for. Okay, I want to talk about this bill that's before. I understand why it's, fan, it's fascinating and compelling and a train wreck, Alabama. But my God, the tax bill uh, right now that's, go, that's being considered by the Senate that the House already passed is much more consequential for America. First, let's just give a lay of the land. Uh, right now they say they don't have the votes to pass it. I don't know what that means. It could be that Ron Johnson of Wisconsin is just using it as leverage to get some of the things that he wants for small businesses. But what's your sense of, is there a real chance that enough Republicans will say, sorry, I'm not voting for this bill? So there's a website called 538. I recommend you read I like it. it. And, it, yeah, and yeah. it broke down like 10 members um, of the Senate who, have, who are like sort of not signed on, 10 Republicans who have not signed on to this bill yet. My sense is that 
this, is, this has some problems. And the problem is because they have different considerations. And the right. more you're sort of moving around, if you're moving the bill to make it less deficit increasing for Bob Corker, then you're, hurt, you're annoying Ron Johnson right. and Marco Rubio. So I think they actually do have a problem. And the thing they have to worry about is if they start opening up, you know, and saying everyone, everyone gets to change the bill the way I want to, they might be in Obamacare situation very quickly to where they can never reach, you know, Rand Paul and Susan Collins or the equivalents of this bill never get together. I think they are in a little danger. That's the whole focus is, like when you read a story that says they're going to vote this week, that's Mitch McConnell's staff told the reporter for whatever publication they're going to vote this week. They're trying to jam the members because the goal is let's force a vote quickly so you don't get to negotiate and ask for what you want. And the members actually at this point are going to have to say, like Corker's went out of his way to say I won't vote for a bill with that adds a dime to the deficit. I don't know why he said that thing. Yeah, how can he You knew a bill was going to come that looks look, look like this one does. And now he's got to yeah. stand up to, for himself or not or look kind of dumb. By the way, Ron Johnson, let's just take one. There are a couple in his camp. You say you're not for it as a negotiating position. I get that. You can only help yourself that, uh, and they'll woo you. And then a couple other, I think, responsible Republicans are saying, well, if it doesn't have the great effects on the economy they're predicting, we want some changes in the bill in the last half of it. I get that. But how can Bob Corker, specifically Bob Corker, put down that marker, cannot increase the deficit, and then vote for the bill? So what he's asking for, at least today, is he wants something called a trigger. So he, so the, you know, the estimates are that the Republicans say tax cuts increase the increase the um, economy, so that reduces the deficit deficit increase. So what he's asking for is a trigger, which means that if the deficit, if the, deficit the growth is not big enough and the deficit increases, they'll agree to tax increases automatically. You can imagine that tax increases automatically is going really well over there with his colleagues yeah. who love for this them, idea. For them, that phrase is a trigger. Yes, who, by the way, yeah, it yeah. is a trigger, and several yeah. of them have said they are they want no. <laughs> Shaking in the corner, you know, Paul Ryan. So we tend to assume things will pass in Washington, but the last the Obamacare bill didn't pass. John McCain kept saying, I want something, and they kept ignoring him, and then he voted against it. So I'm not ruling out the possibility that Corker, Flake, a few others. I just think things are more dynamic than we think they are. And I think this bill, while looking like it has momentum, because Mitchell McConnell's office says it has momentum, actually does not have momentum. This bill is not popular. It polls at about 25%. The health care bills were not popular. They polled even less than that. But it seems to me that with this bill, it has several differences from health care. I don't know if the public's polling is as important. We always heard, you know, health care is very personal to people. That became a cliche. But was it true? I mean, is it possible for a health care bill that polled at 20% to go down in flames, but a tax cut bill that polls at 25% to pass because we think of the issue of taxes differently than we do uh, the issue of health care? I think it's different because the Republican Party views this differently. I, a few of them, I think Pat Toomey said this one day, in fact, we never really planned to repeal Obamacare because we never thought Trump would actually win, which was, you know, a rare moment of honesty for a politician, but it was very open. Versus, I think Paul Ryan said the other day, if we pass this bill, once people know more about it, it'll get more popular. Someone else said that a few years ago about another bill. I just think that for the Republicans and the, particularly the Speaker, he really cares. This is a thing he cares deeply about, and McConnell does too, in the same way Pelosi really cared about Obamacare. And I just think this issue is different because they actually have thought about this, yeah. and I think they do want to find a way to... My guess is if Corker pushes really hard, they will change the bill, but still, like, you can imagine a process where this bill has changed a lot, and we get through to get to, you know, January, February, but I don't imagine they're going to give this up the way they gave up on health care. Well, I'll give you another two differences. With the health care bill, you could not get 
one credible organization that had anything to do with health to endorse that. And most came out against it. The hospitals, the insurers, everyone, uh, many states' attorney generals came out against it. With the tax cut, all the normal entities that are always clamoring on about tax cuts are for this bill. Yes. So it's much more normal. And the other thing is... With the healthcare bill, there was uh, some of the guys from Vox, I forgot if it was Inglacius or Ezra Klein, were saying, you know what, a part of me, and maybe it was even some of the guys from Pod Save America, I only consume podcasts, <laughs> some of the guys were saying, a part of me almost wants them to pass this bill because it's so terrible that it'll immediately, they'll suffer the consequences in a big way. I did hear Koki Roberts say to you or you guys when you were on this week with Stephanopoulos, um, you know, if they pass this bill, it will bite them. But I do not get the sense that people think that this bill, if passed, will be a millstone around the neck of Republicans like the health care bill was. I think you're getting it, which I think is a big difference, too, is like it was clear who was going to suffer from the health care bill because there was a, you could, there's medic, the people know who's on Medicaid. They showed up, they're the disabled, they're the elderly, they can't, people in wheelchairs were coming to this capital. The clearest victims, as I can tell, of this bill are honestly people like the people in this room who are kind of upper income, live in a blue state that has high local taxes or a blue area here. We're not really a state, obviously. But I mean, so I think that the victims here are the particular people who might lose out are not as sort of sympathetic. And, you know, Susan Collins is not going to have you guys cheer her at the airport in Maine, you know, or what have you. So I just think that's an issue, too, is like, it's not clear, because this bill is complicated enough where it's not necessarily easy to say your taxes will go up, your taxes will go down. It's not. So I think the, the sort of people who might not benefit are sort of diffuse in a way that the healthcare bill was very precise on this low-income population. All right, here's the last thing I want to ask you about. The debt. What are the politics of actually being against debt and deficit? It seems to me that politics is hard and there are always trade-offs. And when it comes to tax cuts or balanced budgets or any sort of priorities, something has to give. And the thing that always gives is, well, we're at, we'll add a little more to the deficit. Just like in international affairs, the thing that always gives is the Kurds. Yeah, we'd like to, but we'll fuck over the Kurds, right? Is there any, does anyone really, people might say, oh, I'm very upset that there's a real debt. But are there any politicians actually serving constituencies where most of their voters are these like rabid debt voters, like there are rabid gun, rabid gun abortion, name your other issue voters? No, was it one of the Tea Party, one of the, the Freedom Caucus members actually said recently to the Times, I'm pretty sure, that um, it was convenient to talk about the debt when Obama was president. But now that we're in charge, we don't, we don't need that talking point anymore. And I think that's, that's an honest assessment. Which Do is you know what a Kinsley gaffe is? You know, that, yes, exactly. Like Kinsley gave us when you tell the truth in an honest yeah. way. There's a gaffe. And I think in this <laughs> case, I don't think that like the Democratic Party is focused on debt except when they can say the Republicans are raising it. And I think the Republicans only focus on debt when they when they oppose some social program like you know, like, like Obamacare being pushed by the Democrats. So I think you're right is that the debt only matters. I'm not sure that – I think in this moment where Flake, Corker, and John McCain are not going to be running for the office anymore, I think they might care about it more than if they were running for office. And I think that may make a small difference. I don't think when to say it's an irrelevant effect because I think they will make some push. Pushes, I'm not sure if it'll be a shove, but I think they'll make some pushes toward changing this bill. 
Okay, and the last thing I didn't ask about, I have said on my show, maybe the Democrats would be more successful if they didn't even talk about it as a tax cut bill, just talk about it as a health care bill. It will cause 13 million people to lose health care, the CBO says. Is that a good tactic, and might that cost the bill eliminating the individual mandate? Might that cost the bill any Republican votes? I don't think so, only because, well, sorry, Republican votes. Um, it looks like... Murkowski, uh, Collins, or the others... I mean, the problem with the mandate is while it, while the CBS will take away a lot of insurance, the mandate itself is not very popular um, because it like you know it's people thirteen million people would choose not to buy health insurance is not necessarily the easiest case to it, make. It is a mandate. If it were popular, it wouldn't have to be. It wouldn't mandated. have to be yes, a mandate. So it looks like Collins is nervous about how the health care bill moves, but uh, or how the health care bill is affected. I don't know if we're like you said. We have sort of ten people who are saying weird things that are contradictory and at times don't make any sense. So I just don't know if they're going to vote vote against the bill or not. Perry Bacon Jr., five thirty-eight. Thank you so much. Thanks man. for having me. Thank you. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, whose voice is in fine form, but his instep has been hurting. Mary Wilson, also the gist producer. She has a beautiful, beautiful singing voice, but tennis elbow. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. His voice was totally unaffected last night. Although as a resident of Washington, D.C., does he really have a voice in our national conversation? The gist, coming back tomorrow in a non-Lauren Bacall version, we hope. Oomperoo da Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.